I've been doing a uh, kind of an online uh, class, and I've never done this before, so it was really interesting trying to do that with video conferencing. It was like Hollywood Squares, all these faces up and and, and talking to them. But it was, it was interesting, and it was people from around the the country, you know, a few here and a few there. Um, and then some that were right here. And we had our last class on Friday after three months. And um, as we went around the, the horn and everybody was just kind of talking about what the last thing that they wanted to say to the class was and what they gleaned, one person brought up that they were reinforced that it was all about humility. You know, the, the class was, about, was called Retreating in Place. We we're talking about how do you develop an intentional spirituality in your life? And, and he said that, you know, it was reinforced with him the humility. And since he's in the program and humility is so stressed, it all just kind of locked in and came together that humility was such an important part. And then a, a woman piped up and she said that she was re-impressed with how central gratitude is uh, to everything that she's trying to do in this, in this area. And so, you know, I piped up, of course. Humility and gratitude. These are the two cornerstones of everything. And they are the principal effects of a life that's lived in a contemplative lifestyle. And I know some of you might be new here, and when we talk about contemplative, we're talking about a non-rational, non-verbal approach to God. It's not going to be through intellect. It's not going to be through, all, through theology. It's not going to be through you know, words those are the guides and those set the parameters for us, but then we need to sink beneath those and just be present to God because God's native language is silence. And unless we learn to speak that, then we're always going to be lost in the translation someplace. We're always going to be a step away from the real presence of God. And so when you live this lifestyle, the effects of it are humility and gratitude because with just these two, just these two attributes, everything else comes into focus. It's kind of like Jesus saying, you know, seek first the kingdom and everything else is added. At this point, everything that we are looking for in our spiritual lives comes into focus if those two are present. Right? Think about the, the, the fruits of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians. And I think it's Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's a great list, isn't it? They all flow naturally from gratitude and humility. And why is that? Why are gratitude and humility so central? Now, if you look up humility in the uh, dictionary, you know what it probably will say is something on the lines of a low sense of self-importance, you know, that, that your importance is of no account, that you have this, this uh, lack of pride, perhaps, is usually the way that it's defined. And I suppose that's accurate, but it misses the whole point of what humility is really about. Because for our purposes, humility is seeing, acknowledging, and accepting the true nature of our relationship with God and with each other. When we can see that relationship completely undistorted, see it for what it is, something changes in us. Because what we realize is is that God is always the provider, and we are always the receiver. It never goes the other way around. 
A lot of us like to have a bit of a God complex. We want to be in the giving position. We want to be in the providing position because then we think we have a certain amount of control. But really the truth of the matter is that everything that is good comes from above, right? The Bible tells us that. Everything, our next breath, we are completely dependent on God for everything. We are literally his children. We are literally his dependents. And when we finally, through experience, understand what that relationship is, see it completely in reality, that's humility. Everything changes. And then when we see ourselves in relation to each other, not lower than, but equal to, completely co-equal with everyone that has ever been and everyone that will ever be and everyone that we will ever meet, no better, no worse, identified with each other, that's humility. Humility is a completely unvarnished and undistorted view of our relationships. And then what's gratitude? Gratitude is the completely undistorted and unvarnished view of this moment. Not importing anything into it from our heads, but seeing and being immersed in this moment to the extent that we can see that it is just enough. This moment is just enough. There is no artificial sweeteners. There's no additives that need to be added to make this moment right. It is right. When the moment is right, when the moment is just enough, what flows from that is what we call gratitude. So can you see what's starting to happen here? Humility is an undistorted, completely unvarnished and real view of our relationships vertically, horizontally. Gratitude is a completely undistorted, unvarnished view of this moment and the understanding and the acceptance that is just enough. Gratitude and humility are these undistorted views, which is what the contemplative life is training us and showing us how to do. How do we step aside from all of that chatter in our heads? How do we step aside from all the judgments and the, and the contrasts and comparisons and the past and the future and everything that we bring to a moment to judge it as less than, to make ourselves miserable, to compare and contrast ourselves with each other and find ourselves wanting or prideful? All of that stuff goes away. So the question then is, if this is the effect that we want to achieve. How do we get there? How do we get to this? Now, understood correctly, gratitude and humility are the effects, right, of being present enough to be able to see the truth that is right before us, the truth of our relationships and the truth of presence. They are the effects of this undistorted view of ourself and our moment. So how do we get there? Is it about counting our blessings? That might help. Is it about doing a four-step workshop and taking a moral inventory of your uh, shortcomings? That can also help. But at that point, what we're doing is just treating symptoms. We're not really getting down to the cause of what is keeping us apart from the truth, apart from this. So what I thought we'd do this morning is interesting. And that Frank said that he wanted to uh, read a passage that is something that we don't often get to. I want to talk about a figure in the Bible that we haven't talked about too much in here because I think he's got something to say here. He's got a way of helping us. And that's John the Baptist. 
Not to be confused with this John the Baptist, our own John the Baptist, but John the Baptist in the New Testament. Let's read for a second. If we take a look at John 3. So this is going to be right after Jesus has the long discourse with Nicodemus, you know, the famous John 3 talk with Nicodemus. So if you got the red letter, it's just a whole swash of red. And then when you hit the black part again at the back end of the chapter, this is where we're going to pick it up. After these things, what things? After the things that he was doing with Nicodemus, after the things that he was doing in Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Enon near Salim because there was much water there. And people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. Those would be the purification rites. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, talking about Jesus here, to whom you have testified, behold, he is behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Now later John is going to clarify at John four two that it wasn't Jesus who's baptizing. You'll never see Jesus baptizing in the gospels, interesting. But his disciples were. They were baptizing. So what's going on here? John was the one who had been on the ministry trail for several years now. John was the one who came roaring out of the desert, the wild man, and was an Old Testament type of prophet, preaching repentance and coming back to to the old ways. Repent, baptizing as a symbol. And then here comes Jesus, late to the party, and John baptizes him. And now Jesus is stealing all of John's thunder, all of the, the... Folks are starting to desert John and move over to Jesus' camp, and Jesus is attracting more. And all of the usual human emotions start to creep in with the disciples. Obviously, there's got to be some jealousy and some envy. There's got to be fear there. They've been following John all this time, and now he's losing support, and it's going in this other direction. And so they're coming to him, and they're saying, you know, basically, what are you going to do about this? Now, here's this guy, and he's taking all of these people. All right. Behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. But listen to John's answer. He says, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Now, to a Jew, to say heaven is a euphemism for God. It was a polite way of not saying the name of God. And so where you see heaven, uh, often it's referring to God. And this is what he's saying. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him by God. This is that perfect description and definition of humility that we're going to see from John in two lines. And then he's going to give us his perfect description and definition of gratitude in two lines. And so here's this first one, acknowledging what we just talked about. Because he had seen his relationship with his Father in heaven, he knew that everything came from his father. All he's basically doing is rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, right? That's all he can do because everything, all the resources, everything, all the provision, the lachem, the bread, that was their symbol for provision, comes from above. And he understood that. And it changed the nature of his relationship with his father. And then he says, You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ but I have been sent ahead of him. So now here's his 
relationship with each other. First, he understands his relationship with God rightly. Now he's understanding his relationship with each other. He's not the Christ. He's not above them. He's not below them either. He is one of them. He was sent to prepare the way for the Christ. He understands something about himself. He understands something about his own identity. He understands something about the nature of his relationships with everything and everyone that is around him. Perfect one-two punch. Perfect description of humility. And we see that it has ordered and reordered his life. He lives by these principles. He's not just spouting them. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. Now he's talking about Jesus. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This is beautiful. (laughs) What he's saying here is that just to be near the bridegroom makes the moment perfect. Just to be able to hear his voice changes the nature and the quality of the moment changes the nature and the quality of his experience of the moment. He doesn't need to be the bridegroom in order to feel grateful for his life. He just needs to be near. And that is what he can do. That is what his humility will allow. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now think about this. Isn't all joy really gratitude? When you think about it, Or at least this, isn't all gratitude experienced as joy? How do you distinguish between the two? Can you be joyful and not grateful? Can you be grateful and not joyful? If you're really grateful, you're joyful. This is the confluence of these two two terms. What we're talking about here is the expression or the experience of joy, but it's rooted in the gratitude, which is rooted in that this moment is enough to just stand by the bridegroom. And every one of us can do that as well. This is what John is trying to get across. This is what he's trying to say. So was this understanding, this point that he had reached in his life, was that instantaneous? Is that something that just happened? Or was it something that he had to be prepared for himself? And when you consider John's backstory, then you kind of see where he's coming from. John was born miraculously. Do you all remember the story? Um, Zechariah, who was a Levite priest, uh, one of, the, one of the, the, the temple priests in Jerusalem, was his father. And Elizabeth was his mother. And although the Bible doesn't say so, tradition has it that Elizabeth was somewhere around 88 years old and was barren and childless. And the angel comes to Zechariah and tells him that he's going to bear a son. And when oh, she's going to bear the son, he's not. But uh, he's going to have a son. How about that? That really would be miraculous. <laughs> so he's going to have a son. And Zechariah doubts, of course, because it's kind of like Abram and Sarah, right? Uh, yeah, right. And so he's, uh, for, for his disbelief and for his doubt, he is struck dumb. So he can't speak anything until all these things are fulfilled, is what the angel tells him. But the angel also tells him that this boy of yours, who shall be called John, will never taste strong drink, will never drink anything that's fermented from the vine, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit inside the womb, and he will be dedicated to God. Well, this is why most New Testament scholars believe that he is one of the three lifetime Nazarites. A Nazarite was someone who dedicated their, their lives to God. 
usually for just a short time, sometimes just eight days, a month, or somehow. But Samson and Samuel and John the Baptist were said to be Nazarites for life, which means that they would never touch anything that came from a vineyard. They would never taste strong drink. They would never cut their hair. And they could not approach any dead corpse, whether it was animal or human. They couldn't even go to their, their father's funeral because they were supposed to stay away from the, the corpse, from being defiled in any way. And they were a Nazarite means to be separated, to be dedicated to God. And so the angel is telling Zechariah, this is your son's life. And this is what bore out, both in the New Testaments and a tradition for John the Baptist. As soon as he was old enough, he went off into the wilderness and lived out in the wilderness. You know, scriptures tell us that he wore the camel hair and the leather belt. He ate locusts and wild honey. You know, it's amazing how much scholars make of those little details. There was pages and pages of what his diet must have been like, how it really could have been honey the way we think of honey. It was probably date honey, but that wouldn't give him enough caloric intake to keep his brain function going, and so the locust had to be this and that. It's like, really? Okay, that's a little bit more than I needed. But at any rate, you get the picture. He was a wild man out there. His hair was uncut. He was living out there. He was probably in a scene which was one of the sects of Judaism that was, was living out in the desert in separated communities, trying to hold to a very pure understanding of Judaism that they thought was being defiled in the country itself. So he's out there in the wilderness for long stretches by himself or with these isolated communities. And all that time, he's developing what we've called in here the shepherd's consciousness, the same consciousness that Moses established in his 40 years in the backwater of the Midian, literally tending sheep. But in that environment, alone, in the silence of the wilderness, of the mountain or the desert, to be able to start paying attention to the little things, to learn to become friends with silence and solitude, the stillness that begins inside and radiates outward or starts outward and radiates inward in both directions, John was a man who had lived this way. John was a man who learned to treasure silence and solitude. And when he came out of the wilderness, just as Jesus came out of that same wilderness to start his public ministry, John did as well. He was a man who was prepared in his consciousness to be present to the moment, to be able to notice the little things and not leapfrog over them just into the spectacular. And so he was prepared. And yet at the same time, take a look at John 1, starting at verse 25. They asked him, and these were Levitical priests and, and, uh, and temple magistrates, asked John and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Now in the passage just before this, they came and asked him, Are you the Christ? And he said, No, I'm not. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not. Are you the prophet? Well, who's the prophet? The Jews had traditions that Elijah was going to come back bodily, be a reincarnation or a, re, or a reanimation of Elijah himself before the Messiah came. And Jeremiah would also be one of these. In fact, many of the prophets were said that they were going to come back. And so they're asking him, are you Elijah? Are you Jeremiah? Literally. And he says, no, I'm not either of those either. It may be confusing for you that Jesus later says, yes, he is Elijah, but because he's talking about the spirit in which Elijah 
operated his ministry. John operates in the same spirit. But John is answering them literally. And so when they asked him, and he said, and they said to him, why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answers them and says, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. He comes after me, and the thong of his sandal I am not worthy to untie. And so he's talking about the Messiah, but not necessarily about Jesus. It's not clear that he ever met Jesus. Mary was related to Elizabeth, his mother, and she came when they were both pregnant. And the scriptures tell us that John leapt in the womb, recognizing the spirit of Jesus next to him. But it's not clear that he ever met Jesus afterwards. Did they ever play together as children? We don't know. But even then, would he have known Jesus as a grown man? Because he went off into the wilderness, and we don't know what Jesus did for those 18 years. But later on, this is what he's saying. He's talking about the Messiah in the abstract. He's talking about the Messiah theologically. The Essenes were a messianic sect. They were an apocalyptic sect. They believed that God was going to intervene and reveal things directly into human history at some point. And they believed that that point wasn't too far off. And that the Messiah was going to come and lead the nation to throw out the Romans and reestablish a sovereign state. They believed all these things. And he's talking about this one that will come in that understanding. But these things took place in Bethany and beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man of a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came, baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me, the Father, to baptize in water, said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Even after all of John's lifelong preparation, even after his immersion in the beliefs of his sect, the beliefs of his people, of the Messiah coming, he still didn't know Jesus and didn't recognize Jesus as such until he saw the Spirit descend and remain. Then he had a moment. There's a moment. You've probably had moments like that. I hope you've had moments like that. A moment when the questions that seem so important just kind of fall away. The moment when all the stress and all the anxiety and the worry and the fear just falls away. It's one of those breakthrough moments where you just feel like you've broken through. That something becomes clear. Even if you can't express it rationally, verbally, you feel the release. You feel that. I hope that you've had moments like that. John is having a moment like that right now. He sees the Spirit descend. He understands exactly who Jesus is. He is the fulfillment of everything that he has dedicated his life to. And everything becomes completely undistorted, unvarnished in that moment. I had a moment like that once. I call it my amnio moment. <laughs> what? Let's see. We're going back 15 years 
15 and a half years. We had just found out, Marion and I, that we were pregnant with what was going to be Brennan, who is now our 14-year-old. And Marion was in her early 40s, and I was in my late 40s. And uh, yeah, late 40s. And so she went for her first wellness checkup, and the first thing, of course, that she was she was set up as a high risk pregnancy, of course. And the first thing that the nurse told her was, or asked her, was, "Do you want to keep it?" And that just hit Marion like a ton of bricks. I wasn't there, but I'm hearing it from her afterwards. "Do you want to keep it?" It's like what? And the nurse was so blasé, so matter of fact about it. You know, I've probably done this a million times. Well, yeah, you know, at this age, he's at high risk for Down syndrome. He's at high risk for spina bifida and a host of other problems. You're at risk. Do you want to keep it? And it's like, well, of course we want to keep it. Well, then you at least should have an amniocentesis because that'll tell you what's going on with the baby and we need to figure this out. And so she comes home and she's in tears and, and we're talking about this. What do we do? You know, what would we do if we had the amnio and found out that the baby was in one of these conditions? Would we then abort? Would we then terminate this pregnancy? Would we want to keep it? And we couldn't answer the question at the time. You know, we were just kind of thrown for a loop. And I remember, you know, for several days, just kind of in that fog. And, you know, when something is that big as in your mind, it never really goes away. It's always just kind of circling the airport and coming back and back and back. And I was sitting in a parking lot. Um, I can't even remember what I was there for. And I was just staring out the, the front windshield, and there was a Burger King right here to my left. And across my windshield comes a, a young girl on a bicycle, and she caught my eye, and I'm watching her go across, and she's wearing a Burger King uniform, so I know she's going to work. And as she's putting the bike in the bike rack and, and tying it off, I realize she's Down syndrome. You know, I can I can see her and I can see how she's moving and I'm thinking, here is this girl who's she's Down syndrome but she's got a job, she's obviously got parents or someone in her life that cares for her and has created a home for her and has allowed her to be able to have the kind of independence that she has to be able to do this job, and she's found an employer who is willing to hire her and she probably is the most cheerful and the most on time and the best employee that they've got. You know, doing what she can do. And at that moment, I just realized I can do that. I could do that. I could be the father of a Down syndrome child if it comes down to it. And at that moment, all my questioning went away. At that moment, the fear went away. And I was able to come home. And, of course, Marion had had her own amnio moment. And we said, yeah, you know, do we have the amniocentesis? Why? Why bother? You know? It's just going to make something miserable for the next few months if it gets the wrong answer. So we didn't even have the amnio. We just went for it. And, uh, and Brennan came out, and he was pink and perfect, and Apgar was great, and all that kind of stuff. There was that moment that I just knew. It just broke through. And I think that's the moment that John had. He's looking at Jesus. He sees what he sees, and he breaks through, and he just knows And all of that fear falls away. All of that questioning can fall away. And here he is, right in the present moment, feeling grateful, feeling humble. That's it. These moments that we have are so important for us to mark and to see what's happening as they're happening as we move more and more into this practice of presence And so 
Once you have a moment like that, everything's just going to be roses and cherries afterwards, right? You're going to be able to maintain that kind of clarity and certainty for the rest of your life, right? Let's read about John, shall we? At Matthew 11 this time, starting at verse 2. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? What? This is the same John who leapt in the womb. This is the same John who had his amnio moment in the River Jordan. Are you the expected one, which is the exact title that the Essenes used for the Messiah? Are you the expected one? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah, the Mashiach? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? Or should we look for someone else? Wow. Now think about this. John had called out King Herod for divorcing his wife and taking the wife of his brother Philip, Herodias. Called him out and said this was unlawful. This was abomination. You don't do that to a king and have happy results, right? So he's thrown in prison. He's given a death sentence. He's waiting in prison for his death sentence to be carried out. Everything that he thought that he was about. He was the forerunner. He was the preparer of the way of the Lord. And here he was rotting away in prison and going to be killed. The death of all of his dreams. The death of everything that he had worked for. Well, how would you feel? How would any of us feel? The certainty of one moment is not necessarily going to carry through. And this is why I love the scriptures and the way the scriptures are written. They give us that undistorted view. They give us that unvarnished truth. They show us human nature for what it is. So that we can see ourselves. And that the scripture and the stories don't stay out there remotely in another time, in another era, in another language, but they can come home and we can see exactly how it applies to us, exactly how we can use this. And Jesus answers and says to him, he sends his disciples to Jesus, asks them the question, and Jesus answers and says, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. This is coming right out of Isaiah, right out of one of the Dead Sea Scrolls that was unearthed in 1946 as well, that was part of the Essene sect. He was giving John a report that he couldn't miss because of who he was. All of this prophecy is being fulfilled in your lifetime. It's all happening now. And then he says, blessed is he who does not take offense at me, which is kind of a strange way of saying, blessed is he who isn't stumbled because I am not filling their immediate expectation. Is basically where Jesus is going with this. Because that's what had happened. Jesus wasn't scratching all the itches that John needed to see, to know, and to continue to know in that prison cell that he was the expected one. But Jesus gave him an answer that he couldn't miss. Yeah, since my amnio moment, there was ups and downs through the entire pregnancy where we would start to worry again and we would start to think again. You know, it didn't change our decision, but it certainly changed the emotion. And of course, Brennan was born perfect. What if he wasn't? What if he was born spina bifida? What if he was born Down syndrome? What would have been my reaction then? Could I have held on to my amnio moment or would I have lost it? the way John lost it when his moment went awry. We'll never know the answer to that one. 
But this is the human condition. This is what we're up against. To keep coming back to the moment, of course, is the key. To keep coming back to this moment being enough is what this is all about. Some total, we need to be prepared. We need to be completely present to ourself in the moment to get to the place where we can see truth as truth really is. The scripture shows us the unvarnished, undistorted journey, the real journey, the unvarnished, undistorted truth, if we're willing to dig beneath the surface of it and get down to where it can be applied directly to our hearts. Some moments are intense enough, all by themselves, to pull us into the present, but most aren't. Most we have to actually work for. And the traumatic ones actually pull us out of the moment because of the pain. And we have to go against the flow if we're going to lean back in and find the only source of healing, the only source of comfort that's possible for us. So, as we spend more time practicing presence, the more we begin to see, we realize that any moment, and this is something that's been hard for me, have to realize that any moment that I engage in where I'm trying to build something, to complete something, for any reason that is not immediately present right here and right now is pulling me out of the moment. If I bring my agenda to the moment and this moment is only serving another outcome over here, then I'm feeding into my fear again. I'm feeding into the incompletion of this moment. This moment is not complete. This moment doesn't do it for me because it's only serving to complete it out there someplace. And so the gratitude is gone. And if I think that I will be better when I do this and maybe better than these over here or there, then my humility is gone. As I work to strive to try to do something that is not fulfilled right here and right now. All these lessons are hard learned. I haven't learned that one. That's still something that dogs me. It's still hard for me not to plan. All of the uncertainty and everything that is circling around this move and, and fundraising and all that, which I hate to do anyway, you know, is pulling me out of the moment constantly. And I have to try to work to come back to remind myself that these things I have ordered my life around for these decades now really are true really are the solution to the, the attitude and the stance that I find myself in because of circumstances over which I had no control. But if I can do that again, if I can lean back in, if I can live as if these things are true even when they don't feel that way, then in that moment my gratitude returns and my humility returns. This is what it's all about. In reality... We don't know who we are or who we can be until that moment of pure presence. That's the moment that shows us. That's the moment that informs us. And you don't have to take my word for it. Take a look at 1 John 3. Starting right at verse 1. If you do nothing else this week, go read 1 John. At least the third and fourth chapter. I mean, it is incredible. It's probably the clearest statement anywhere in the New Testament about the nature of God's love and the nature of our relationship to it. But take a look at this passage. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us 
that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Think about that. Read that again. We will know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. When we have become a people who can see the undistorted view of this moment, see the undistorted view of our relationships, then we have become like him. We become like the Father. So that when we are face to face with him, we will see him as he is, and we will see ourselves in him as well. And what's that going to look like? Gratitude and humility. And if those two terms sound foreign on the Father God that we've all been trying to follow for part of our life at least, the King of the universe, the Creator of heaven and earth, the Alpha and the Omega, a humble God, an unassuming God, a vulnerable God, a grateful God, if we can't see Him that way, it's because we haven't broken through in our moments to find those qualities in ourselves. Because when we have, then we will see a completely undistorted view of our Father and realize that we have become one in the same way Jesus said that He and the Father were one. That's what we're after. And we can start any time we want. Coming home to this moment, realizing the moment is enough and our position is exactly the way it should be in that moment. Let's pray. Father, so often we have this really distorted view of you. We want to clear that up. We want clear vision, undistorted, the real you. Help us to become more and more able to see that by becoming more and more present to this moment in our relationships. Help us to take nothing for granted, to see even in the smallest things, the significance of your presence, to develop our own shepherd's consciousness that will allow us to more and more see these moments as they are, to see you in them as you are, and to realize that without even knowing it, we have become more and more like you as we've traveled. Thank you for everything that you give us along the way. Thank you for each other in this room, how we support each other, how we reinforce each other, your scripture, your teachers, and your spirit, all here for us to be able to do what we need to do as human beings, as your children. Thank you, Father, for everything that you give us and shower us. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.